This podcast is hosted by Tony Clomax, director, writer extraordinaire, and Dr. Tammy L. Holmes of We Learn LLC, an educational consulting firm. The purpose is to talk to a litany of professionals in various fields to learn how they do it and why they do it, while getting their take on a wide range of topics. We cover politics, health and wellness, education, entertainment, social justice, current events, and more. So thanks for coming by. Grab a drink, take a seat, and enjoy the ride. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode three, What's the Sauce? I'm Tony Clomax, writer-director extraordinaire, with my co-host, Dr. Tammy L. Holmes. Glad to be back. Episode three. That's right. And uh, we have a very, very special guest, one of my HU brothers, Hampton University. That's right. I'm not talking about Howard. I'm talking about Hampton, the original. And he goes by the name F. William Samuel. But he also has a government name. And his government name is William S. Parrish Jr. And um Dr. Tamiel Holmes, can you um, tell us a little bit about um, William S. Parrish, Jr.? Certainly. William S. Parrish, Jr., with close to 32 years of experience in construction management, William S. Parrish, President and CEO of Noble Strategy, LLC, has consistently coordinated and delivered large-scale, multi-stage construction projects where success depends on the balance of community stakeholders, civic representation, agency resources, and technical staff. William started Noble Strategy as a one-man consultancy in 2002 while working full-time. In 2005, he quit his day job. Within a year, he had forged strategic partnerships and won several state agency contracts for construction management based on his knowledge and relationships. His new motivational book, Making Bold Moves, Creating Multi-Million Dollar Successes in 500 Days or Less, details his remarkable success and is geared toward aspiring entrepreneurs, business owners, industry executives, and anyone hoping to foster major successes in his or her life. And somehow he transformed into F. William Samuel, and we're going to learn how he did that. But F. William Samuel is a comedian, he's a writer, he's an actor, author, and personal trainer. And, um, and he, he played football. And so when he comes to the stage, he, he brings 300 pounds of twisted steel, comedic prowess, and gives advice on topics ranging from relationships to church to fitness. Look, let's just stop talking about this brother. Let's hear from his mouth. Welcome, my brother from HU, F. William Samuel. What's up, Dr. Tammy? What's up, Tony? How y'all doing? Great, brother. Great. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Glad glad to have you. Look, tell us, where did the F. William Samuel persona come from? Absolutely. 
So my name is William Samuel Parrish, Jr. That's my full name. So the F William Samuel is really not a stretch. It's my first and middle name, William Samuel, and I'll get to the S, the F. Uh, I'm no stranger to pseudonyms. Uh, I ran a clothing company in 1994 called Billy Brown NYC. So I had some familiarity with, you know, kind of plays on names. At that time, you might remember clothing lines like Cross Colors. You might remember Carl Kanai. Uh, his name is not Carl Kanai, it's Carl Williams, but, you know, he kind of flipped it. You know, can I? Yes. So he his, his pseudonym was Carl Kanai. And I kind of took that and ran with it and created this line called Billy Brown. Well, several years later, uh, I decided to focus on what I went to school for, which was construction management. Building construction technology was my major at Hampton University. And I created a construction management firm and we worked successfully in the New York and New York and New Jersey market from 2005 to current. And uh, entrepreneurship is extremely stressful. It creates the latitude, the flexibility, and the freedom to do a bunch of things. So I've been always involved in several things. So in addition to construction management, I had a retail fashion line, Billy Brown. But I also uh, started doing comedy almost five years ago. Uh, I mentioned that small business can be stressful. And uh, I had a coworker who said, you know, don't take yourself so seriously. You know, you got to laugh more. And as you get older, you know, you're, you're encountered with things that you didn't face when you were younger, like people dying, you know, it's like every Saturday I'm going to awake, <laughs> you know, and it changed my focus. So I said, you know, I really do want to laugh more. And I uh, had always been interested in comedy, stand-up comedy. Uh, so I was turning 50 years old and I took a comedy class and, um, I was a little bit of a natural in that I was used to being on stage. Stage presence was okay because from my construction management business, I had taught classes. I had done presentations. I had uh, delivered keynote addresses in front of chambers of commerce and minority business uh, organizations and, and everything. So I was comfortable talking to people. I was comfortable being on stage. But then they actually asked me to examine my life and you might find some things that are funny. One being the fact that you read I was a personal trainer, that was actually a joke. Nobody laughed, but that was a joke. Because, uh, you know, it's kind of like, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, when have you met a 300-pound personal trainer? But, you know, the first thing you know when you go to the gym is muscle is heavier than fat. Exactly. So that, that's the first thing you get established. And that's why I said 300 pounds of twisted steel, you know, don't really look like the average sack of potatoes. But anyway, I wanted to take a lighter approach, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, you got to do the work, you got to fight to get your money, you got to fight to be on the team, do business development. And I just said, you know, I want to laugh more. So I took this comedy class and it worked out really, really well. My entrepreneurial instincts kicked in right away because when you start doing comedy, they're saying like, you know, you want to get on stage for six minutes, you got to bring out at least six people who are going to eat and drink. And I'm saying, you know, I have close friends, but I, I think that's going to happen once or twice. And they're not going to be like, you know, we're not going again. You're going to have to find somebody else. So I decided to start promoting comedy. And I took on the pseudonym F. William Samuel, uh, William Samuel being my first and middle name. And the F, you know, I like to say it could stand for funny. It could stand for fantastic. It could stand for a couple of different things. Give you a quick story about that. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie uh, Straight Outta Compton or yes, early, sure. 90s, early 90s rap videos, especially on the West Coast with Ice Cube and N.W.A., 
Uh, you might be familiar with F. Gary Gray. Right. And F. Gary Gray used to shoot videos and he, you know, produced several of my favorite movies, The Negotiator with Samuel Jackson, uh, The Italian Job, Straight Outta Compton, uh, a whole host of movies. I'm sure I'm leaving. I think he did one or two of the Fast and Furious movies. And the way he got started, is this the PG show? Can Is, is uh, no profanity? <laughs> it's for all people. Okay. All right. So the only point I'm making is when he went into audition, the guys from NWA were like, you know, uh, we got to audition directors. Who's up next? And they were like, uh, some guy named F. Gary Gray. <laughs> and they was like, man... <laughs> F Gary Gray. You know, they didn't say they didn't say F. You know, they said, you know, freak Gary. They didn't say freak, but you know what I'm saying? They said fuck him. Yeah. They said they said fuck Gary Gray. And he said, okay, I like that. I'm gonna turn it around and I'm gonna use that as fuel. And that's what I decided to do. I said, okay, it's gonna be William Samuel, but you know, coming to the stage, you might, man, fuck William Samuel. All right, let's do that. And you know, ladies can form a line over here. I'm just joking. That's just a joke. <laughs> I would not ask ladies to form a line anywhere to F. William Samuel. So that's how I got the name F. William Samuel. That's awesome, man. That's that's freaking awesome. Your life, your bio is so... You've done a lot. You've done absolutely a lot. And one of the things that really jumps out is your entrepreneurship. How did you go from being an employee to being an entrepreneur? I'll tell you, man, I, um, you, you know, it's something to be said about kind of stoking fires. When I was growing up high school, no one ever said anything to me about entrepreneurship. I didn't learn it until I got to Hampton. All through school, they told you to do well in school so you can get a good job. That was really the basis of their coaching. You want to do well. You want to have good grades so you can get a good job. No one ever said you create your own industry. You can create your own jobs. You can hire people. No one ever said that. But when I got to Hampton, I had the good fortune of working with actually one of my fraternity brothers, brother named Rick Ebanks from uh, from Inglewood, New Jersey. I'm from East Orange, New Jersey. And uh, he had a T-shirt enterprise on campus. I have to say it was an enterprise because he was sitting in the dorms and people would just bring him money back. And I said, wow, that's kind of leverage, that's sales, that's business development. That's all the stuff that we're here to learn, but I got a chance to learn it on the ground. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I made my way through Hampton. Uh, I threw parties, uh, I sold t-shirts, I, I had like a t-shirt enterprise. And when I say enterprise, I had like eight or nine people selling t-shirts for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I got a chance to sit in the dorm and just, you know, kind of keep the ledger and people come to me with the money. And uh, it was really a great experience. And what happened is uh, I never forgot that. I never forgot that when I was working full time, I always had the itch to do something on my own, but it has to be sustainable. You know, people always say, don't quit your day job until you really got it, you know, right. Mm -hmm. And when I started the retail clothing company, it was around the time that Carl Kanai came out and the guys from Queens, uh, Damon John, uh, FUBU, mm -hmm. and, and right after Cross Colors. And we had a, a successful run for about five years at the time I lived in the Bronx. And uh, we were in probably 110 stores nationally wow. and internationally. But the hard thing about it was you always had to do promotion. You had to give away a bunch of stuff. And you remember the 90s, we started the line in 1994. And in the 90s, it was all rap videos until MTV got smart and started blurring out logos. It was really free promotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we really enjoyed that period. 
And I always kept that. So uh, I had a bad experience with my manufacturer where I got to the point where my name was on the clothes and it was my marketing and my contacts that were selling the clothes. And then I would be like, you know, there's a video shoot. I need like 20 shirts. And they'd be like, oh, no, we're going to have to find a way to get those paid for. And I got very frustrated with not being able to get my own merchandise. So that's when I said, let me go back and, and formally do in business what I was trained for. So I had already been working in construction management by that time from 1990 to about, yeah, 2004. So I had a good time in the industry. And what I did is I used to counsel minority businesses on, you know, grants and whatnot and support. And one of the first things you had to do to get a certification is you had to have two years tax returns to show that you were in business. And here I am coaching all these guys, teaching all these classes. So before I quit my job, I said, let me put my applications in. Let me file these taxes for two years. They said, even if you don't make money, file the taxes. And I filed them and I went and I said, when I get my first minority business certification, I'm going to leave and pursue this work on my own. And I got my first certification in December of 2004. And I left my full-time job in June of 2005. Wow. Wow. It's kind of always been in me, you know, and it's, it's not for everyone, but uh, I'm a dice roller. Entrepreneurship is not for everyone. And as, even though I'm a professor, be, prior to becoming a professor, you know, I was just a full-time filmmaker. But being a full-time filmmaker, you are an entrepreneur. And if you don't and if you don't approach it that way, you're gonna drown. And so being in New York and being a filmmaker, it definitely hurt in the whole dating process because people were just like, Well, well, how do you get your money? We don't know how you're getting your money, when you're gonna get your money. Yeah. You know, I, I need to date somebody that I know that they're going to get a check on the 1st and the 15th and they got health insurance and they got benefits and things like that. You're, you're not stable. And so I know a lot of entrepreneurs have definitely run into that, you know, in, in the dating process and, and just living life period. So it's definitely not for the faint of heart being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you know, anytime you connect with someone else, it might not be their dream to do that. You know, and you got to understand and balance that. Fortunately, I've been married for 27 years to the same woman. Uh, and <laughs> she is, she she's super, to, to be quite honest. Um, she had a, a stint of entrepreneurship as well. She's into science. She's a PhD in science. And she had a passion to teach girls science and, and create, you know, STEM education way before it was popular. And she did that for like 14 years. But she is the type where she needs to pay, be paid twice a month. Mm -hmm. You know, as an entrepreneur, we say, all you don't kill, you don't eat. <laughs> Which means you're constantly in perpetual motion going after stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're highs and lows, man. You really have to manage yourself, your discipline, your attitude. You know, sometimes I could go four or five months without being paid. But the good news about that is, you know, I got accounts receivable that one day I'm going to, you know, uh, go go in the office and, and I'm going to have a $40,000 direct deposit. Right. For some people, that, that just doesn't work. Yeah. Not at all. But, you know, it's not ideal. Mm -hmm. But I've taught myself over the last 20, almost 20 years how to manage it. And, and it's gone successfully. Uh, we have two kids, one who just finished Hampton University, 20 two years old, 
that we put through school and one who was a, a sophomore at Howard. Uh, I just couldn't convince her to go to Hampton. Uh-oh. I actually offered to buy her a car. And she was like, I'll take the Metro. <laughs> and she is going to be a junior at Howard. I'm very proud of her. That's the best second place you could get, if you ask me. Howard University is the best second place on earth. So I was pleased with that. Right. Uh, if, if you're not going to win the gold medal, right. it's, it's okay to win the silver. It's a real nice, shiny silver medal. Real nice, shiny silver medal. <laughs> I would even wear that silver medal. It's really, really nice. Exactly. Um, but um, the point, <laughs> the, the point is, um, yeah, we've been able to uh, support ourselves and and put our kids through school and enjoy, you know, a lifestyle that I'll say is not the lifestyle of most comedians that I work with. Right. You know, uh, I haven't had to sleep on anyone's couch. And I learned that comedians do that stuff for a reason because, you know, I have a friend right now who just went to L.A. to do shows and she says, you know, I'm, I'm about saving money. So like she's somewhere in the hood, you know, actually in Mexican gang territory, she said. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she'd rather do that rather than buy a hotel for five days. So so it is a different way of living. It's a different lifestyle. Uh, but I'm fortunate that it's worked for me. You know, I used to have drag out arguments with my wife and, you know, she'd be like, when are you going to stop rolling the dice? And I'd be like, you know what? They got an application down at the post office. If I had worked at the post office, we wouldn't be having this discussion, you know? It brings me to a concept uh, with Carter G. Woodson in his book, The Miseducation of Negro. Mm -hmm. And Carter G. Woodson talks in one of his chapters, a very popular book, early 1900s, where he talks about this idea of being an employee versus the employer and how we are oftentimes trained to be an employee and we are not taught of a mindset of how to be an employer. And uh, in Carter G. Woodson's popular work, one of his quotes, uh, he talks about the lack of confidence of the African-American in himself or herself and his possibilities is what has kept him down. Uh, His miseducation has been a perfect success in this respect. And so a lot of this conversation of being an employer or entrepreneur, it's a mindset. And most of our mindsets we're trained from uh, yay high of kindergarten on preschool to go out and get a good job. We're not taught to start businesses. We're not taught to be an employer. We're taught to seek to be an employee, to get the benefit package, to retire, to be sheltered for the nine to five. So we can have that sense of success or security versus building that to give to builders or to others to inherit or to be able to create for someone else. And so a lot of that is a mindset because we feel more secure, supposedly. But in that security, we can be eliminated just like in a second and be replaced just with the quickness. And if anything has taught us that in the midst of recession or this pandemic, uh, that you could be eliminated and they will replace you with the quickness and tomorrow I'll not think about you by this afternoon. And so I think that some of the skills that entrepreneurship can teach you is how to quote unquote hustle, uh, how to go out there and to be able to survive, if you will, or how to make it in case you do become eliminated. And so listening to you or listening to some people are not cut for it. But there is a lot of people that do have that security package, but still hustle an entrepreneur on the side 
and grind while they're grinding to make those dreams come true. Yeah, you're right. I, I have quite a few. We, we've been out of school 30 years now, uh, 32 years. I have quite a few friends who are retiring now. And, you know, uh, on the one hand, you feel a little envious, like, wow, they get to put their feet up. You know, they got pensions, quite a few friends in law enforcement, uh, a few uh, work other government jobs, military, uh, even education. And they're at a point where, you know, they can put their feet up and, and, and almost all the time they go and do something else. So it feels like, you know, they get to go kind of do what they want to do and get all this extra money that they work for as a benefit. And that's really, really hard to resist. I understand that. Uh, but I also wouldn't trade entrepreneurship for being a W-2 employee ever. Uh, there's a great book called The Corporation of One, where they talk about, and I teach this, I'm actually, uh, I've been an adjunct at New York University for 15 years as well. And what I say to students is, you know, one of the biggest differences about incorporating or, or just kind of be an employee is when you run a business and you're incorporated, basically you get to do, uh, let me switch it. When you're an employee, you work, they take the taxes first and then you live off of what's left. You're right, makes sense. You work, they take taxes out before you even see it and then you live off of what, what is left. As a corporation, the government allow, the rules are such that the government allows you to earn your money and do all the living you can all the living you want to do within the guidelines of the business deductions. You could do all the living you want and pay taxes on what's left. That's a huge difference. So if you want to play golf twice a week and you want to join the country club, that's a deduction in your business. As long as you made enough money to pay for it, that's a deduction. If you want to fly from the East to the West coast, chasing projects or making projects, that's a deduction. So you basically get to, live, do all the living you want and pay taxes on what's left as opposed to work, let them take the taxes and then you live off of what, what is the remainder. It's, it's a really different men mentality. And so as an entrepreneur, you've also brought up part of that is the flexibility and the autonomy that is provided. When you talked about being an adjunct faculty for 15 years, I wanted to ask you about that since you segue there. Uh, you talked about, so exactly what area do you teach in as adjunct? So, uh, perfect for me, New York University has a real estate institute. Uh, you're pursuing a master's degree in construction management or uh, real estate, and you would imagine New York City being like one of the largest capitals of uh, commercial real estate. That's a popular curriculum. Uh, I teach a couple of classes in, in the real estate institute. I teach operating and managing a construction organization. I teach uh, managing municipal contracts and claims. I teach construction safety management, and I've taught business development and, manage, and, and management, which is really a marketing class. And it's just about opportunity. I mean, for adjunct, the classes are in the evenings. You know, I have a flexible schedule. So if I have to teach from 6.30 to 9.30 on a Tuesday night, that's fairly easy for me. I like it because it keeps me current. You know, if you're teaching, and especially in a, a, a university like NYU, you got to be on your game, you know, uh, so it forces me to stay current within the industry. Uh, it is in my industry. And I use it also from a marketing standpoint where there are folks that are in larger construction management firms than mine 
and we always want to partner, I have something I can offer them now. You know, I can go to a company uh, that's been in business for 100 years, like Turner or Tishman or Bovis or Gilbane, and I can create networks and relationships with the people who run those organizations that might might create an opportunity for me. You know, I can say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a guest lecturer. You know, we'd love to have you come in and talk, not theory, but practical application on what happens in your industry. And most of the time, people who have arrived at that level want to do something like that to give back. So it's a win-win. They get some satisfaction out of it. The students get some satisfaction out of it. And I get some satisfaction out of it. So it's a perfect scenario. I, I can only imagine, of course, the, the theory and the practical and the building of relationships and to be able to, to teach and also be that eternal student and keep up with your with your industry. Uh, yep. you, and to be an adjunct, to have that flexibility as well. I can only imagine on the other side, along with uh, the instructional part, I also know that you're an author. And so with that yes. writing side of even the educational piece, let's talk a little bit about your your scholarship, if you will. Tell yes, us more yes. about that. So uh, I, I wrote my first book, Making Bold Moves, Creating Multimillion Dollar Success in 500 Days or Less. I mentioned earlier that during my construction tenure, I often was teaching emerging businesses, minority business firms, women-owned businesses. Uh, I worked in a lot of uh, construction mentoring programs, right? Because I have a f affinity to teach. I, I, I think I relate to people well, and, and I can talk to people. Everyone can't do that. So, you know, I realized that all the stuff that I was teaching, these lessons made sense. So one of the things I learned as an entrepreneur is they say you should have at least three streams of revenue. You should have whatever you do as an entrepreneur. You should also have a, a speaking stream of revenue because you should be able to go and speak about what you do. And then you should also be able to write a book and make it tangible, right? So uh, I set out to do that. So uh, talking about encouraging entrepreneurship from an early age, my mother uh, bought Black Enterprise Magazine for me when I was very young. Well, not too young, 10, 11 years old. And I love to read those stories and see the successes of those Black folks, people who look like me. And I used to always say, man, one day I would love to be, I, I think I said on the cover of this magazine. And in 2009, I wasn't on the cover, but I was in the magazine. I actually appeared in the Black Enterprise twice as an emerging business spotlight. And in 2009, I was a finalist. Our firm, Noble Strategy, was a finalist for Small Business of the Year. So out of the country, I was one of the three firms that we didn't win, um, but we were one of the three firms who were finalists for Small Business of the Year in 2009. Uh, so that even that process was a great experience. But um, I set out to write a book about it. Reading Black Enterprise, you get to read all these book recommendations and all these stories, et cetera, et cetera. And I started going to the Black Enterprise Entrepreneurs Conference because I needed to be in the space where all these people were who were doing all these great things. You know, they were like fuel for me. And uh, in the process, I was able to create relationships. We're talking about networking relationship again with folks like, you know, uh, Butch Graves, you know, Earl Graves Sr., Earl Graves Jr., Butch, Derek Dingle, several folks, uh, Sonia Aline. Uh, I could go on and on and on. And, and what happened is I read a book 
that Derek Dingle wrote, I think it was called the Titans of Black Enterprise. And it was like a profile of maybe eight or nine different history makers. And, you know, when we went to the conference, I was always go to his sessions. And one day I said, you know, I've got him after a session. You know how there's that long line after a session when people are speaking. And I said, you know, Derek, you know, I'm working on a book. I want to send it to you because I would love for you to be involved somehow, maybe write a chapter or the forward or something like that. And I think he probably gets a bunch of those requests. And he was like, yeah, yeah, send it to me. Kind of maybe blew it off. And I went to work mm. and I went to work and I set out and I had a bad experience. And this is once again where entrepreneurship helped me. Uh, I said, I'm not a writer. So let me go find somebody who writes for a living. So I worked with a guy who was a writer for the Amsterdam News in Harlem. And uh, he said, you know, for a fee, I'll come in and, you know, we'll sit down and we'll have meetings. I'll tape them and then I'll write your book. And I thought, OK, I guess that's how it works. That sounds good. Long story short, I, I met with this guy for four months. We, we started in January. He told me that he was going to be able to deliver something to me in June. And we met probably two every two weeks for maybe three months, four months. And I paid him five thousand dollars. That was his fee probably two weeks. And, and every time he would send me a section, because everybody told me, don't wait till the end for him to send you the stuff, get it while he's writing it. It never sounded like it was in my voice. You know, it was, he said, well, you know, you want your book to have some controversy. You know, he kind of wanted to sensationalize it. He wanted to use names and people. And I, I said, I'm still in the industry. I don't want to do that. Long story short, he came back and he was like, I can't finish the book. What? And he just vanished. He didn't say, here's your money back. He didn't say, here's somebody that can help you. He didn't say, let me take what I, I fairly worked for and then I'll give you a rebate. No, he just left with the five G's mm. and he didn't do $5,000 worth of work at all. So I was forced with a scenario like, you know, once again, I'm not going to let these obstacles stop me. So I had uh, a woman working for me who was an English major at Hampton University, and she had edited a New York Times bestseller. And I said, well, I'm going to need help writing this book. And I decided that I was going to write it on my own because every time he sent me rights, I had to rewrite them. So I decided I was going to write it on my own. I enlisted her support. Excuse my dog. I'm sorry. I enlisted her support to uh, edit. And she forced me to make the story clear. You know, like I'd be talking in construction jargon and she's like, you know, if I don't, if I'm not an industry, I'm not going to understand this. You have to explain it a different way. Over like 10 months, finished a great product. And then I sent it to Derek Dingle and he was like, I would absolutely love to be a part of this. And Derek Dingle wrote the foreword from Black Enterprise Magazine on my book. I actually have the book here. I don't know if you can see that. Making Bold Moves, Creating mm -hmm. Multi-Million Dollar Success, 500 Days Left. It's my name, but Derek Dingle's name is on there too. Forward by Derek Dingle, Editor-in-Chief, Black Enterprise Magazine. So it became a lesson in kind of goal setting. You know, people say, write your goals down. And then people always say, tell somebody about your goal because that convicts you. You know, I know a lot of people who want to lose 20 pounds, but they don't want to say anything because they figure like, if I tell you I wanted to lose 20 pounds and then I don't lose them, then I'm going to be embarrassed when I see you. And I'm like, no, it's just the opposite. If you tell people you want to lose 20 pounds, they're going to be like, how's it going? How's it going? Hey, can I help you? Where are you at? What's your progress like? And they're going to make you accountable. So write your goals down and tell somebody about them. And I think you have a great uh, opportunity to achieve. 
what you just presented is is the hustle. You know, being able to hustle. Did you learn how to hustle before Hampton or while you were at Hampton or after you left Hampton? I, I would definitely say at Hampton. I didn't really do any of that stuff in high school. I was an athlete. I played football. And, you know, I was a, I was a good student. But when I got to Hampton, you know, you're living in a campus and a community where you control your time, you know, and you're like a little bit in the bubble. That campus is your world. So I quickly learned how to talk to people, which is sales. I quickly learned how to promote and market. And before I knew it, not only was I selling T-shirts, I was selling Benetton bags. I sold Free South Africa posters. If you remember those Keith Herring Free South Africa posters you used to see back in the late 80s. Uh, I was uh, throwing parties. If you remember Legion Hall in Hampton, um, you know, we just threw some skating parties. And so so that hustle, I think, was was created and nurtured at Hampton, being in that environment where this is your community. You know, if you're not afraid to talk to people, which I wasn't, uh, you can build a network. You could build some channels of distribution. You could build some sales channels. and you know, one of the things that enticed me about selling T-shirts is the guy I was working for, he was like, you know, just go out on the block. That's, you know, the area like right where sitting around all the women's dorms, actually. And, um, you know, sell shirts. There's more women on campus than men. You're probably going to sell more shirts over there. And I would do that. And I, I love the fact that all I had to do was be where everyone else was already with a bag on my shoulder and I, and, and, and I get to just talk to women and I could walk away with a pocket full of money. I'm like, how is this not the best thing in the world? I have friends that had to stop what they're doing and rush off to Mercury Boulevard to go work at Red Lobster or, you know, a lot of students worked at the restaurants. I didn't have to drop what I was doing. I didn't have to leave the block. I didn't have to leave campus. So it was really, really easy for me to start, but it taught me so much because what I was doing was sales. I was doing marketing, advertising, promotions. And then we would, when, our, when we lost our community graduation, we would travel to where our community was, like the Greek picnic in Philly. You know, we would drive there and sell T-shirts or Freaknik in Atlanta in 1994. <laughs> you know, we're, we're driving, we're walking up and down the street where it's like a parking lot and we're selling T-shirts. We had just launched I went from selling, you know, Black Awareness and Malcolm X t-shirts to Billy Brown, the decorated apparel, you know, retail line. And we launched that in 1994 and we launched it at Freakman. We went to homecomings, we went to Morgan State homecoming, we went to Howard's homecoming. And, you know, we would just buy a table or walk around with bags and sell merchandise. So I think my hustle was really nurtured at Hampton. Your hustle was on another level. Because, um, you know, you know, I'm from Chicago and while I was at Hampton, I, I cut hair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I play football as well. I used to write papers for my teammates. I used to cook for certain young ladies if they couldn't cook and they wanted to pretend that they could cook. So uh -huh. I, I would I would cook and I, I was a ghost. I was a ghost chef. And so, you know, that was pretty, that was pretty much, you know, like my hustle, but Hampton had a lot of hustlers on yeah. campus. You know, it was, everybody was doing a lot of different things, you know, 
But I tell you this, my hustle, I, I like to say Chicago taught me my hustle. Hampton polished my hustle. Yeah. And when I left Hampton and went to Michigan State for grad school, mm -hmm. every obstacle that I came across at Michigan State, it was a breeze because I could handle it. Yeah. And 85% of the black graduate students at Michigan State were HBCU graduates. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I want you to talk about the importance of not only Hampton, but of HBCUs. Absolutely. Uh, the first thing I, I let me just go back to, uh, I did hustle in East Orange. They're from East Orange, New Jersey. And um, I, I did learn hustle there. You know, I mean, I bagged groceries for money. Uh, I sold newspapers door to door. I always won whenever our school was selling candy. I always won. Mm. It wasn't always because of me, though. My mom knew everybody. And she'd just be forcing people to buy the, that candy. You know, she she was in a couple of bowling leagues. If you know how it was back in the 70s, everybody was at the bowling alley, man. Mm -hmm. So I always won the candy competition. So I think my mom kind of infused that in me early, early on, too, even before high school. But um, the value of HBCUs, man, it's, it's so understated. I mean, it's like it should just be law. Like people still ask the question, well, maybe not now, but two, three years ago, they were asked the question, are HBCUs still relevant? And I'm saying, I don't even know how you can ask that question. People felt like, well, because we got a black president and we got this widespread acceptance and, and everything is mainstream. Do you really need your own? Absolutely. Absolutely, because that school created that nurturing community, that nurturing environment that allowed us to just grow untouched, if you will, for a short period of time. Now, that's why I'm making this film about homecoming, right? Because it, it, it's, it's just the reason we want to go back is because this place is responsible for your incubation process your incubation period where you be, you came of age, but in such a nurturing and safe environment to do it. Uh, we always had those arguments with friends, you know, PWI versus HBCU. And I'm quick to tell them, man, I can compete. You know, one of the things I got from Hamden is confidence. I know I can compete against any of those guys and beat them on any day, mm -hmm. any day. And that's from Stanford, down to you, whatever you want to go, whatever you want to call it. So um, it, it just can't be beat, you know, what you get. I, I know so many, you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in, in the Hampton, uh, North, North Jersey Hampton alumni chapter. And, you know, I talk to a lot of parents and unfortunately, so many decisions is, well, we're going to go wherever they give us the most money. Right. That's a reality for us unfortunately still. And, and I get it, right? You, you want your kid to have a great experience and college is expensive. So the aid package becomes a very big deal. But here's where we're at a disadvantage. All the white schools need smart black kids. So they're always gonna offer your smart black kid more money, always. They also need smart black athletes. So they're always gonna offer your kids money. But I think if we are able, whether it's through community financing, SUSUs, 
families, credit unions, whatever, if we could stay focused at sending our kids to our schools, I think we all win. And I always, I even tell my kids, you go to, you go to HBCU undergrad, graduate school, you go to PWI. That's what graduate school is for, if you ask me, right? So you can work out those challenges like you had at Michigan State, so you can build some more networks and some more relationships. And so you could get the final polish maybe that you want or that you feel you need, but get your foundation at a historically black college and university. I, I don't think there's any other way it should be done. And I'm glad, you know, Forbes magazine called 2020 the year to HBCU. I'm sorry it took them that long to recognize that, but I'm glad still that uh, we're being uh, seen in a light that we weren't before. I am a product of a PWI. Okay. My parents are products of HBCU. My brother mm -hmm. is a product of HBCU. I, on the other hand, was a product of PWI. I teach at HBCU. Okay. So right. I am a little bit in the middle because I've, yes. I've seen some of the advantages. Mm -hmm. And I also have experienced some of the disadvantages of both mm -hmm. sides as a student and then also as a faculty. Yes. As always, I've also seen some PWIs as, as I have attended that were large universities, but yet the African-American population was big enough that could mm -hmm. have classified as a small HBCU mm -hmm. as far as mm -hmm. percentage of students, but did yes. not have the faculty or administration to mirror a HBCU in that mm -hmm. percentage as far mm -hmm. as lacking. You can have that experience, but you don't have the well-rounded experience. Yeah. There's a lot of different capacities of mesh-ups. I've also seen where HBCUs don't necessarily have African-American studies department as mm -hmm. far as classes and curriculums because mm -hmm. they have the experience of being around their own but don't have the culture, the, the have the culture but not the, the history, the classes, the courses, the information. But yet you can go to a PWI and out of civil rights and movements, you get those courses, curriculum and content Absolutely. and seem Absolutely. to have more conscious based students as far as that is concerned or degree oriented programs. But you can't get them at HBCUs. So Absolutely. I've seen some of the, the, the nuances, but as mm -hmm. now teaching at an HBCU, I've seen some of the top tier, quote unquote, HBCUs versus some of the not as popular HBCU or not as well-funded HBCUs, mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. state versus there are some distinctions that appears to be when you Absolutely. talk about your Hamptons and your Howards versus some of your other more agriculture or mm -hmm. uh, schools mm -hmm. that are attended versus your populations, if you will, right. that uh, there are some distinctions as well. I think HBCUs definitely are... Uh, Students who do go, I do see the difference of the confidence level and the experience level and the networks that you establish. As a faculty member, I think there is a lot more that is invested in with the faculty of the experiences that you get and you gain. As a student, I don't can't say because I'm not that person who had that experience. Mm -hmm. 
But mm-hmm. for where I went as a PWI, I'm glad for the PWI experience I went to that had a significant large African-American community. However, yeah. I wish I would have had more faculty yeah. that surrounded so I could have had that investment to see those but, faculty members on a daily or administration and not just. It took me a while to get to a HBCU and see all black people pretty much on yeah, a daily. Okay. That was a yeah. transformation in my mind that it took me at least a semester to get over. Yeah, no, you, you, you brought up a good point in terms of resources. I had friends, you know, we would travel. First of all, if, if there was a time when if you were an athlete, you know, you really didn't want to think of any, anything else but a PWI, right? Because they seem to have the resources, they have the facilities, you know, on TV every week, you feel like you're going to get more exposure. And I'm so glad more and more top athletes are starting to choose HBCUs. I mean, if you look at the locker rooms and the facilities like Texas A&M and it's going to be a long time before we can compete with that. But there's something else that you do get. So I understand it. But I have friends uh, who went to Syracuse and I have friends who went to University of Maryland that I stayed in touch with. And I can say that those black student unions and those big white schools get a lot of attention and money (laughs) in terms of resources. Uh, I can tell you that the best rap concert I ever went to, and I'm not judging it only by rap, but the best concert I ever went to in college or no college was the Greek freak at Syracuse university where I I saw a brand new being performed. I saw black moon. I saw run DMC and like KRS one all on the same ticket. It was ridiculous, right? Because those schools have the resources and they have enough black students that they feel they have to, spend the same money and resources with them as they do with other groups on campus. Black schools are not always like that. You know, we, we sometimes are lacking in resources and sometimes it's a shift, right? When I was in school, the homecoming concert was never for us. Oh no. You know, I mean, we would have like, you know, Kenny G or, you know, it was, uh, it was all about all the jazz. Things. It was all about the jazz. Yeah. I didn't realize, but that's because the people who came back, the older alums who were giving, that was the demographic that they were paying attention to. Now the school, things have changed. So like Hampton, they, they had homecoming 18, they had little baby, homecoming 19, they had the baby. And as I understand it, the babies are very popular with the kids. Yes. So, so the they're babies. spending some money and they're catering directly to the kids. But that's a shift that came along. But, but I will say that same thing. I saw X-Clan. If you remember X-Clan perform at University of Maryland, Cold Fieldhouse, I believe it was. They they stuck together, too. And I can imagine that if you are in the Black Student Union or in the Black population at a big white school, you're going to find each other and y'all going to stick together. But what's different, and I'm sure they had great educational experiences, but what's different is I don't see their hunger to go back to their schools. I don't see their hunger to return. You know, I don't see their hunger to to be involved. And and I'm and and maybe I'm missing it, right? Uh, I have a friend who has three sisters. They all went uh, well. It's three girls. Their parents went to Hampton, and two of the girls went to Hampton, and she went to Duke. And we always talk about that. We have fun with it. But and she is involved with the Black Student Union at Duke, right? Black alum, you know. So you know, it happens. But for the most part, I don't see 
the graduates of the PWIs wanting to reconnect the way that we sometimes see at HBCUs. And that's really what I'm trying to examine and delve into and expose in the Homecoming Ready film uh, that I'm really, really excited about uh, for these reasons, you know, stories that maybe people are not aware of. I'm glad you, you touched on that because one of the things that used to uh, frustrate me and honestly used to break my heart was Howard's homecoming was always the same time as Hampton's homecoming. Yeah. And yeah. I would see my friends and classmates pack up their cars mm-hmm. and leave and not attend our homecoming to go to Howard's homecoming because mm-hmm. of the music. Yes. Yeah. They had Kanye West last year. <laughs> years ago <laughs> just that used to kill me it used to yeah. kill me it bothered me so much and so to work on the documentary homecoming ready are you going to leave it as that name are you going to change it yeah yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm feeling like now homecoming ready okay and um and just you know full disclosure I've been tapped to as as uh, one of the consulting producers and the editor of this uh, wonderful documentary series. Yes, congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I mean, you you spent what was it three, four years filming? Four years, four years so far. All of these homecomings. Yeah. And I got to tell you, because as a as a football player, I didn't get to participate. Yeah. Like yeah. that. And, you know, we had curfew. We had curfew, so we couldn't go out, you know, on Friday. And so we, we had curfew and we played a game. So we didn't really get to participate in homecoming until after the game. So yeah. to watch yeah. all this footage and B-roll and the, and the interviews, and I'm just like, wow, like this is what I was missing as a player. Yeah. It's allowed me to kind of like relive you know, what I miss. I just want you to talk about what was the inspiration behind this project, where the project is right now, and what's the end game for the project? Okay, thank you for that. Uh, And let me just say thank you, Tony. You've been an immeasurable uh, support uh, and fixture on this project. And uh, I know we wouldn't be where we are now without you. So thank you. I thank Daryl Nevison also, who uh, put us together. I have to go back to uh, two films that I, were, I was moved by that made me want to tell stories. So a brother named Byron Hurt made a film called Soul Food Junkies. It was on PBS. It's really a love letter to his dad who died early of diabetes. But he couches this story in the bigger story of our love for soul food, which kills us in some cases but we have such an emotional and in some cases cultural attachment to this food that even when you go to the doctor and they say, if you don't cut it out, it's gonna be bad. People still in all cases don't cut it out. So so that was the way he told the story really, really uh, impacted me. I guess if he said, I'm gonna make a movie about my dad and my love for my dad, the fact he died of diabetes early, maybe it wouldn't have been such a good story. But the fact that he came at it from an angle that I certainly could relate to in terms of growing up with this food. And, and he titled it Soul Food Junkies because it's like it's an addiction that we can't get off of. 
That's the first thing. The second one was a film by Stanley Nelson, who is uh, widely regarded in the industry, called Tell Them We Are Rising. And, and Tell Them We Are Rising, that movie did so much to me. It, it moved me to the point of tears, for one. I, I grew up in East Orange, and East Orange is probably 88% Black uh, for the size. Um, it's, it's one of the Blackest cities in America, considering its size and population. And I always had black teaching and I always had everybody black in my class. So even when I got to Hampton, it wasn't nothing different. But in this film, he showed young girls who were asking their parents, am I ever gonna have a teacher who looks like me? And that was heartbreaking to me. Cause I, I just didn't know that that existed, right? And, and then there was another girl who ended up going to Spelman uh, who said, Throughout everything, she was always the smart black girl. That was part of her identity. But when she got the Spellman, she had to find herself because they were all smart black girls. So she couldn't just be the smart black girl anymore. She had to actually find who she was. And these stories, man, the way he told them really, really were riveting. Uh, he, he talked about how Hampton was formed. He talked about how Howard was formed. And he made a nice dichotomy between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. You know, he, he makes you ask the question, whose process was better or was one of them bad? You know, Booker T. Washington wanted us to, you know, he's telling the white folks, don't worry, we don't want to be doctors and lawyers. We're not going to take your jobs. Just let us take care of your, your horses and let us build your stables and let us build, you know, your houses. But even by doing that, he created trade opportunities for people to become entrepreneurs. Can't get mad at that. W.E.B. Du Bois on the other hand said, no, no, we want to be doctors and lawyers and politicians and bank uh, heads and, and all of that. So it was really interesting how the story was told. And that's what got me into it. And when I heard about these girls who are like, you know, I'm ever going to have a black teacher. I'm like, wow. So what I consider to be just automatically my history they're people who don't know this, right? As much as HBCU, Hampton University is in my blood, it's like, you know, people say it's blackity black, black. <laughs> there, are, there are people who don't have that experience. So I said, wow, well, I would love to show them what it's like. And, and when I first started, you know, this is my, my first venture at this. Um, I was talking to one of my uh, younger chapter brothers and he was saying, uh, after we were talking about the books, he was saying people don't read anymore. You've got to be visual. You got to tell the story on film. They don't want to wait. They don't, yeah. And I'm like, huh? But <laughs> this is a guy who's probably 20 years younger than me. But I try to take everything in from all sources, still being a, 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 a student and learner. So I set out to tell this story on film. And then I said, well, what's the angle I'll tell it from? And having played football, uh, Tony mentioned in the film, my line brother Floyd Petaway talks about missing all the homecoming activities, as does Rodney Wright's son, Easy Rod, who, who we play ball with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're sequestered. I, I was actually talking to the team. I didn't even know nowadays they go to a hotel. Or even, 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 if it's, even if it's a home game? No, for homecoming. Homecoming is a home game, right? Ah. They go to a hotel because... They, the coach wants them away from distractions because everybody knows all your friends are coming into town. Mm -hmm. 
or eat, no matter what you say about curfew, don't go out, stay focused on the game and all that. If they're on campus, they're likely going to get into something, either trying to be a host to a friend who came down or trying to partake in stuff that they don't usually get. They take them to a hotel. Now, in 1985, they didn't do that. But I know we still missed a lot. So what I said was, well, the football team goes through a whole lot to get ready for homecoming. And it's, it's kind of just one game. But I was on campus in 2016 and 17. And I watched how intensely people prepared to go to the game. Not football team, but alumni, students, staff. I mean, I saw young ladies who would sit in a chair for 11 hours getting hair braided. That's preparation. I saw people taking time with nails and outfits. And I mean, that's preparation. So I said, well, I would like to show a little bit of a dichotomy, a contrast between how the football team gets ready for homecoming. It's all X's and O's and technical preparation versus how alumni students and staff get ready for homecoming because it's just as important to them. You would think they're going to play a football game or you would think it's some major competition, but it's not. It's just your chance to come back and meet and greet people you were in school with. In some cases, maybe to impress some people you were in school with. Most cases, just to love people you were in school with and to really have that reunion for this like 72 hours. You know, somebody explained like, it's like I get to unplug from the real world, if you will, where I'm scrutinized, I'm judged, uh, I'm profiled. And if for nothing else, I get 72 hours. And we've been extending that because people coming to homecoming earlier and earlier. It used to be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. <laughs> now homecoming is starting like Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I get to cocoon, if you will, for like 72 hours. Not only cocoon with my community, but cocoon back to 1985, 86, 87, 1993, 95, right? So not only do I get the benefit of being in this safe, nurturing environment for three days, but I get to do it with people that I did it with when I was coming of age. I get to do it with people that I met and made friends with 30 years ago. And that's what makes it so special. So I've been trying to tap in and show that. And I think we really, really got uh, a project that's going to show that. We are finishing episode two, and uh, I'm writing episode three now, which is really challenging because when I first started, I thought I was going to go to homecoming. I was going to shoot. This is actually what I said. I said, we're going to shoot for four days at homecoming, which is in October. Uh, we're going to do whatever we need to do, edit, edit, edit. And then by the spring, I want to be in the film festivals. And that was just so unrealistic. I had no real concept of how it worked. And even my uh, cinematographer said, I don't think you have enough footage after one homecoming. And I was like, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to get this thing done. I want to get it done. I couldn't even conceive having to wait for a second homecoming. But I did, being a student. I said, you guys do this every day. You're the professional. Okay. Then we'll go to another homecoming. So, so we filmed another year. So we filmed 18, we filmed homecoming 17, 
No, we filled homecoming 18, homecoming 19, and graduation in 19. And uh, we were prepared to do something in 20, and then we filmed a couple of days in early 2021, but the pandemic knocked us out in 2020. So our intent is to, uh, Hampton University had their first virtual homecoming and we were able to actually show what we call episode one, which is a 22 minute excerpt of the film. And it just got rave responses. It touched everyone, 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 everyone. Oh my God, fantastic job from young to old, everyone. It relived, it, it, it conjured so much positivity for them and they loved it. But, you know, as I talk to the creatives and the professionals, they're like, okay, but, you know, you got to make a film. I mean, this is, this is good, but this is just a small piece. So we started out to tell this story in a couple of different episodes. And I hope, uh, we got several tracks, but I hope is to sell it to a large content provider, you know, who, you know, everyone is saying how hot brown content is now. Well, I'd like to see. If this is really the year to HBCU, I'd like to see. It'd be great to have a bidding war on something like this. But, you know, the first thing, first things first, is we got to finish. We got to have the stories. We got to make them relevant. We got to make them timely. We got to make them make sense. I'm telling you, Tony, the more I listen to the footage we have, I'm like, we probably can make three or four films. Because every time I try to squeeze something into an 18 or 20 minute segment, I'm saying, but what about this story that came out? I could tell this story. Or what about this reference point or what about, you know, this, this piece right here is a whole story. So the hardest part for me, aside from not having done this ever before, is trying to, uh, in short order, tell relevant stories and connect them together and make them make sense in this uh, condensed fashion. So that's, that's where we are. Um, I'm writing three and, and I think we said we were gonna have four with a bonus five but I already see five with a bonus six. And when I say bonus, that one is kind of already done. That was the Omega Beach House, which it kind of wrote itself. Mm -hmm. And it was so good that it didn't really need to be with anything else. So that's a bonus. So I, I can see uh, three, four, and five, three more easily. But you know, when you actually start writing and putting it together and formulating it, that's when you know what you really have. So I'm really glad for the process. Um, I want to get unstuck <laughs> and I want to move on down the line. Uh, and then we also believe this is going to be a keepsake for anybody who went to Hampton, not just Hamptonians. Um, the people who are trying to decide if HBCUs are still relevant, when they see this and they see the generations of people who went to Hampton, when they see how joyful somebody feels that their daughter is graduating from the school that they graduated from their grandson is graduating from the school that they graduated from. When they see those kind of stories, when they see the stories about what, you know, I ask our subjects, why Hampton? And people talk about what it was that drew them to the school. I think for the people who have not seen this side of HBCUs or not as intimately, it will be revealing and extremely interesting. And what we wanna do is educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Two E's, two I's. We want to educate, entertain, inform, and inspire. And I think we really, really got that covered. And it's going to be a great project. I can't wait to see the end of it. It's definitely getting there. It's going to get there. It's going to do those things that you just named. And it's, it's funny because, you know, in Chicago, 
when I had to choose what schools I wanted to go to. Now, my senior year, uh, we had a public school strike. And mm. so we pretty much missed the first month of school, which means we we canceled four football games. So our wow. football season was pretty much cut in half. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of players who really needed that senior year to impress college scouts and things like that, you know, we were caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And so I had a scholarship offer from Tennessee State. And then I had junior colleges that wanted me to come there. And that was pretty much it. Okay. And, but I did get accepted to Howard, Hampton, and FAM. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm a big, big NFL fan. And so I was going through looking at who got drafted. Yeah. And, and I saw that Carl Painter uh, got drafted and he was a running back from yeah. Hampton. And Detroit. so he went he got drafted by the by the Detroit Lions. So yeah. and you know, I played that was 1985 CIAA championship with him. Mm-hmm. I was on that team. You know, he got drafted and I was just like, "Hmm, okay, if he got drafted, that means, you know, they should be competing for a starting running back. Well, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to walk on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk on to Hampton. And and the and the main reason why I chose a black college was two things. It mm-hmm. was because of school days and Coy Billings, one of your frat brothers. Yeah. Coy went to high school with me and we played football together. So Coy, Freddie Meeks, Yvonne Orr, there were yeah. like seven to eight of my high school friends who went to Hampton. They were freshmen. And Vanessa they, too, right? She went to school with you too, right? Yeah, Vanessa, Vanessa. Allison. Foster, yeah. So they yep. came back and they all they talked about was Hampton. Hampton, mm-hmm. Hampton, Hampton, Hampton. So between the combination of them and school days, I was just like, okay. And Carl Painter graduated. I'm walking. I'm like, I forget going to Tennessee State. Forget that scholarship. Yeah. I'm going to Hampton. My mother was like, well, baby, I, who paying for that? I don't got that money. I, I can't do that. And so you got all these school loans and grants and all this other stuff. And I got to Hampton. And of course, I was a second class citizen because I was a walk on. Oh, man, and, I know about that. But but the thing is, bro, I stuck with it and I became a starter by my That's senior year. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And it taught me to be resilient. It was a lot. I went through a lot. Through the yeah. playing football and not quitting, you know, having that that black college experience. But those are the reasons why I chose to go to a black college. The thing about it is a lot of that is captured. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it's captured and people are definitely going to be definitely going to be moved by this docuseries without a doubt. It's funny. Funny you tell that story. I walked on a Hampton too, but I quit. That's one of the things I quit. <laughs> After... <laughs> After, I mean, you're right. You're second-class citizen, man. You get one chance to do it right. The guys they recruited get 10 chances to do it right one time. You get one chance, and they're like, move out the line, right? So, but that whole experience to walk on to a championship team, not only did Carl Painter get drafted, but I played nose guard because I came as a linebacker. The linebacker was like 6'6". You know, Trevor Strigler was a starting linebacker from Newark, New Jersey. 
And um, I ended up playing nose guard behind Isaac Reading, who got drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. Mm -hmm. So it was a great experience. You know, I got a ring and a jacket. After we played spring football, they were like, you can stay on the team, but we don't have any money for you. Now, when I came to school, my plan, my first year, I was an architect major. And when I looked at the difference between high school football and college football, I said, man, this is a full-time job. Yes, it was. There's no way I can do architecture or, or really focus on school the way I felt I needed to, especially if I wasn't going to get any money. That's, that's kind of, I kind of took it personally. And Floyd, my line brother, same position. He walked on, but he stayed on the team mm -hmm. and he got to play and he got, you know, I think he got some, some real good run going up to his senior year, but that that's one of the one things I could tell you, I did quit after spring football. When you get that evaluation, you know, 30 days, in the hot sun in March and Hampton, uh, April. And they were like, yeah, you, you know, you, you still good, you know? So even then they gave me a chance to kind of prove myself again, but I had to weigh, you know, architecture and building construction is really hard. You know, it's like after all the stuff we have to do with the football team and then weightlifting and then study, study hall, I got to go back to Bemis hall mm -hmm. and, and freaking build models till, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. So I, I decided, that I wasn't going to do that. So I got that experience for only one year, but it was a great experience. But I know exactly what you mean by second-class citizen, man, because uh, that was awakening. And it's a testament to your fortitude that, you know, you walked on and you ended up starting. That That's a, a, a great scenario also. I actually turned down a scholarship to Morgan State to go to Hampton and pay student loans, and I'm still paying them, <laughs> believe it or not. And I would not change it because after I went to high school day, I said, I don't need to see anything else. I never even stepped foot on Morgan State's campus. And uh, that's, that's funny because my first time seeing Hampton was when I got there for training camp. Yeah. Like I, never, I never saw the campus. I, I just uh -huh. went on the word of my friends that that was the place to be. Yeah. And it was. They wasn't wrong. I definitely cherish those times and I don't regret it at all. We, we had similar stories because in high school, you know, I thought I was going to um, go to the pros and, you know, I wanted a school that played on TV every week. So I applied to Penn State, I applied to Pitt, I applied to Clemson, North Carolina. And, you know, my mom was like, somebody had a job, told her, and I didn't know this was a bad thing, <laughs> but somebody told her Penn State was a football factory. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, they have all the tools and resources and their players go to the pros. And she was like, no, nah, you're not going there. You're going to school to learn. So when I realized I wasn't going to the NFL, I said, well, I still want to play ball. And I knew I wanted to go to black school. I applied to A&T, Morgan State, and Hampton. Uh, I did not apply to Howard because after being there, nothing was attractive about going to school and then crossing the street and going to the liquor store. I mean, it was too much in the city for me. Coming from East Orange, Hampton felt like a college campus. I didn't feel that at Howard. And, and now some people like the city as a backdrop of their campus. It, not, not me. It wasn't for me. So that wasn't even on my list. But interesting how people get to Hampton, though. And, and we reveal those stories through these episodes, man. And it's really, really, I think, going to touch some people. And it's going to change some people's minds, too. So as I was looking through a, a long list of your accomplishments and one of the things that I read in your bio is that you completed your first marathon on December the 11th, 2016. 
Yes. However, I also read that the race started on December the 10th, 2016. So that was my, that's, that's my comedy, right? Okay. I finished, I finished my first marathon. I ran the Honolulu Marathon December 11th, 2016, but I ran slow. It did not take me a full day, but you probably could have gone to work, punched in, worked your whole shift, and then left your job, went to Olive Garden, Costco, and Target, came home and did homework with the kids. I would have still been running. It took me nine hours and four minutes to finish the race, but I finished. But you finished. So it's perseverance. Only 1% of Americans finish a marathon. Yes. And I finished on my own accord. I, I probably could have been driven in a Honda Accord the way it felt at the end. <laughs> but uh, I, I, yeah, I say that to say I ran very slow. And it was, a, you know, once again, relationships. Rick Ray went to Hampton, my chapter brother Hampton, plays Gamma Epsilon. But we also went to competing high schools in East Orange, New Jersey. We played football against each other, uh, juniors and seniors. And Rick has always been one of those big in-shape dudes. He is a retired Marine helicopter pilot. Uh, he's in the Marines for 25 years. And he was in Hawaii stationed. And we were at homecoming one year. And we were talking about nutrition and wellness. And I'm trying to lose weight and I'm in the gym. And he just started talking to me. Oh, I had started running. And I said, you know, I really want to tell myself. This goes back to telling people your goals. I really want to run a marathon, but like, I know if I say it, then I got to commit to it. I got to practice. I got to get ready and all that. And I'm on the fence, man, you could do it. He was like, what you should do is come to Hawaii. I'll run it with you. Now he had already run the Honolulu marathon nine times. I mean, this is a super in shape dude. And he convinced me to commit. And that was in November, 2015. And I ran it in December, 2016. It takes you a year. Because I got to the point where I was running, on average, 100 miles a month. I only hit two months where I ran 100, but on average, 80 miles a month. I know people, if you gave them a bus car, I wouldn't ride the bus for 80 miles a month. Like, that's that's a lot of running. But I did it. And even with all of that, it still took me nine hours to finish. But it's one of my biggest accomplishments. And um, actually, I ran three half marathons before that. That's what I was going to ask uh, you. Yeah, I ran the Trenton, the Trenton Half Marathon three years in a row in preparation and readiness for the Honolulu Marathon. I ran a couple of 10Ks. So you just kind of get used to the format. And I thought, well, you know, my my um, if I did a half marathon, 13.1 miles in like three hours, then you know, marathon time should be like six and they're like, nah, no, don't, don't go like that. No. <laughs> and I learned quickly, it, it, it doesn't go like that at all. So I'm sure so, you started from the couch and worked your way up to a 5K and maybe yep. an 8K, 10K, 13.1, yep. and then on to the 26.2. Yeah, I had community with me again. You know, you commit to people. A bunch of my chapter bros, we had the Nike app and everybody wanted to outdo each other. So you run, you post your miles every day. We have a leaderboard and, you know, we had classes, you know, like weight classes, you know, and we were serious. And and one of the segments in the film about this, uh, what we call, we used to call the 500 mile, the 500 mile uh, effort for homecoming is collectively, we wanted to run 500 miles prior to homecoming, just so everybody can get in shape and look good at homecoming. 
It was purely vanity and competition that made us do that. So we started tracking in September and like log your miles, log your miles. And that turned into a heart walk for the American Heart Association where we actually raised money for people who died from heart disease. But it started the 500 mile challenge is what it was called. And it started us just competing, you know, how many miles can you get between like Labor Day and homecoming? Mm. Uh, I used to run myself, so I understand how you start and build and train. I got hurt yeah. uh, at, during the half training. Uh, I, was, I was training for a full, that was the goal, but it ended up with a hip injury, had to have surgery, so. Yeah, and um, I had a hip surgery. I had hip surgery in 2018. Okay, so you understand. But you know what? As a result. I did decide just to do non-5Ks. Uh, uh -huh. I didn't let it stop me. I didn't run. I jogged okay. very slowly or walked very fast. Mm -hmm. So no matter how you do it, you do it at your own pace. You and did as it. long as you finish, it's yep. like a degree. They never yep. tell you how long it took you to get it. They only tell you that you completed it. And Absolutely right. Well, mm -hmm. but you know, since you do comedy, I gotta yeah. ask you. Uh huh. Give me your top five comedians. Oh, I thought you were gonna ask me to do some comedy off the top of the head. I was ready either way. Uh, top five in, in no order, of course. Richard Pryor is uh, is 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 a mentor to us all. Dave Chappelle, because he could just say whatever he wants to say, man, that kind of freedom. You know, it's like Muhammad Ali is one of my idols. I look at Dave Chappelle almost the same way. But I like a lot of, of course, I get to see a lot of comedy. A lot of people that are not so mainstream. Leslie Jones, who used to be on Saturday Night Live, I think is one of the funniest women alive. Really? She has a special cheat. Hey, go to YouTube and watch Leslie Jones' Problem Child. Hilarious. So, yeah, I like Leslie Jones. I, I like so many comedians. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer. I like his comedy. Uh, D.L. Hughley is so smart with his comedy, man. It's like George Carlin was really smart. Like, not only are you making people laugh, you're making them think. You're making them, you know, you pose questions to themselves. That's a real intelligent comic. So I really appreciate and love D.L. Hughley style. But that would be my five right there. I mean, I could name a bunch, but that would be my five. Okay. It's, it's funny. You hit some of mine. Mine was Dave Chappelle, Eddie Murphy, Red Fox, Richard Pryor, Robin Harris, and mm -hmm. George Carlin as a as an alternative. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I like D.L. Hughley. I think is he's brilliant. He's real smart. And yeah. I, I like how he always point out, but I, I only got a GED. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's true. Hey, look, I'm speaking of such, man, I was watching the Nas Illmatic documentary. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was done in 2014. I don't know why I haven't seen it before now. I just learned he dropped out of school in eighth grade. I did not know that. I mean, it's amazing. His power over words and metaphors and vocabulary. And he dropped out of school in eighth grade. So that's just an interesting sidebar. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Uh, let's see, at 21, uh, I would uh, save money, I would build credit, and I would buy a house, buy real estate as soon as I could. Okay, that's good advice. Yeah, because when you're 21, I mean, the world can't do anything to you. You're not really thinking logically about a lot of stuff. You just like, 
taking it all in. Everything the world has, you just taking it. That's not right. really making the deposits, not really planning for the future. But at 21, if I could do that, I would do that. What has been the most rewarding thing being a husband and a father? I think on the husband side, just really building strong black families and being here. You know, my mom and dad separated probably when I was eight. Very strong mom. My father was still around. <laughs> I, I tell a joke that, you know, my dad's been gone for like 45 years. And then people want to offer condolence. And I say, you know, he's not deceased. Now. He just don't fuck with us like that. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know but. As I've gotten older, I've reconnected, and I just know at this point, he's like 77. It is what it is, man. You know, it is what it is. I, I don't know his choices at the time or whatever, and as I'm becoming an adult, I understand how sometimes things go wild, but I don't hold it against him. It is what it is. When I was younger, I was angry, but I will say the best part is being able to be there for my children in ways perhaps that I miss. And for my kids to remember things that I've said that they kind of see come to realization. You know, I used to make my kids, you know, punishment for them when they were in high school. I always told them that, you know, high school is only teaching you the bare minimum that the state of New Jersey says you have to know. Hmm. Don't only read when the teacher tells you you have reading. You should just be reading all the time. And I can remember, you know, my son getting in trouble. And I make them, and my daughter too, I need five pages on the Black Panthers because I knew he wasn't going to get that in school. Right. And unless he stumbled on it, you know, some other way, he was never going to get it. And now, having graduated in December with a marine environmental science degree from Hampton, he's been doing some teaching prior to him going to grad school or, or finding a grad school uh, position, he said, dad, I remember when you told me about the Black Panthers and Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. And, and I talked to my kids about that. He teaches in middle school. And I'm like, that's dope. You know what I'm saying? They don't usually want to tell you you did anything right anyway. And he's just 22. But to hear him say, I'm glad I learned that and, and I can have these conversations with them now and teach them because they're not getting it from their parents and they're not getting it in the school. That's yeah, that would be that. You know, I don't have any children and um, but I got, you know, seven nieces and nephews. And when I was at Michigan State in grad school, I was I was 24, 24 years, 25 years old mm -hmm. and my uh, 14 year old nephew came to live with me in the start high school. And mm -hmm. so he was with me for his freshman year. And then I graduated and we, we went back to Chicago, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until like years later, I'm just realizing you were just 24, 25 years old when I came to live with you and you had me doing all these different things, cooking and mm -hmm. cleaning. And I, I just want to tell you, thank you. You know, you, instilled all these different things in me and I didn't understand it then and it just kind of clicked recently in because he has a he has a son that's going to be three at the end of July and so okay. he was just like he just he just called me up and, and told me that he was like man I just want to tell you thank you mm -hmm. you know it, it's like it makes sense to him now and he's applying it 
to his life. Absolutely. Great feeling. Just for clarification, I know that you talked about uh, your fraternity brother and mentioned on occasion, but just to clarify for our audience, what fraternity are you in? That would be the Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, having pledged at the Gamma Epsilon chapter at Hampton University in spring of 1987. Still financial too. And, <laughs> and, and, and Dr. Tamiel Holmes, uh, she's uh, in the Greek life as well. Oh, I'm a member of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. All right, all right, all right. Final womanhood, right? That's right. Yeah, I know the deal. Thank you. But I, I just wanted to clarify because you kept mentioning and I, I want some people to be asking, well, what, what, what? You know, we want to yes. make sure that you get your due diligence and everybody I knows. That. No, Thank it's you okay. That. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, uh, F. William Samuel, it's been a pleasure to have you as our guest on our third episode of What's the Sauce? And you dropped some jewels, and and I really believe that people listening to this episode will learn a lot. Um, mm -hmm. They'll be inspired, and I'm glad they know now to look out for Homecoming Ready, all about Hampton University's Homecoming that that you directed and produced, and yep. um, I'm a part of as well as the editor, and and you know just pointing out the importance to HBCUs and. And um, and giving back and just our just the importance of entrepreneurship and believing in yourself and, and taking a leap of faith and going out there and and not being employed. Now, now there's nothing wrong with being an employee, but yeah, it's, it's you know being an entrepreneur is not for everybody. But hopefully, you know people who heard your words, who've been on the fence and maybe afraid to take that step. You know, maybe now they're just like, you know what? The time is now, you yeah. know, especially coming out of this pandemic. Right, you know? coming out of the pandemic. I mean, everybody was baking bread. Everybody was at home, you know, selling cookies out of their oven. <laughs> I mean, the pandemic, you know, made some folks pivot. And uh, I I have to tell you, uh, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not shy to admit this, I actually paid $75 for somebody to mail me a cake they made in their house. I probably should feel bad about that. I, it's somewhere like uh, Overeaters Anonymous is probably trying to, you know, Google my information right now to sign me <laughs> up. Because, yeah, I felt bad. It was a friend, but the cake was good. Mm -hmm. But I paid $75 for a homemade cake, man. So I'm just saying you could do it. You could right. do it. But you also supported a friend. Absolutely. And, and sometimes that's what we need to do is to support our friends who are entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, sometimes maybe the prices might be a little steep or whatever. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, you, you know, you know. It, but the thing is, if people are willing to pay high price for all these known brands and things like that, right. that they have no connection to the right. people that make it, then why can't you do the same thing for somebody that you know, you personally Absolutely. know that you can touch and talk to, why not go ahead and support them? And and Absolutely. that is important. And that's how we, and that's how we, you know, keep black dollars in the community. Yeah. And yeah. If, if, there's, if there was anything that you would want to part and leave a word for anybody out here who's on the fence about a, a business, a book, or anything, maybe becoming an entrepreneur or a young person or even an older person, 
what would you want to leave them with right now in a few words? I would tell them the situation won't be perfect, but you got to do it. You know, people tend to say, well, you know, I'm going to wait till my son grows up or I'm going to wait till the kids in the college or I'm going to wait till there'll always be a reason that you can't do it. You have to plan as much as you can and then jump and grow your wings on the way down. That's what I like to say. Jump now and grow your wings on the way down. I'm not asking you to do something silly without planning. So you do have to plan but it won't likely ever be the perfect or the right time to do it. So you got to plan what you can and then jump, be convicted, have faith in yourself and pray and grow your wings on the way down. Nice. Nice. Yes. Can I just ask the people to, uh, if they're interested in the film, they can go to homecoming. Oh yes, homecoming. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Go ahead and do that. They can go to homecomingready.com. Uh, there's some information, get some pictures and some information about the film. I think it's a trailer or two up there. Uh, you can connect with me at F. William Samuel Comedy on Instagram. Please follow me, F. William Samuel Comedy. That's all one word. Um, and if you're on Facebook, uh, F. William Samuel, uh, you can catch me on Facebook also. But uh, I look forward to connecting with your audience. I think this was a great opportunity. I really, really appreciate it that you guys asked me to come on. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for uh, the, the, the time uh, spent uh, on your program to uh, really, really uh, hopefully impact somebody else, someone else. So thank you again. And thanks for asking and inviting me. Thank you. Thank oh. you. All right, we'll see you next time, my brother. All right, brother Tony, Dr. Tammy, thank you. Y'all take care. All right. Take Peace. care. All right. That was awesome having um, F. William Samuel on the show. That was great. You guys got a chance to talk about the Hampton experience, and <laughs> I mean, what do you guys call yourself, Hamptonites? No, it's Hamptonians. Oh, excuse me, Hamptonians. I mean, having that black college experience was great. A lot of people look at Hampton as being bougie. Well, this is one of the top kind of elite HBCUs it's, known as. I'll say this. It's elite. I know coming from the south side of Chicago, coming from a um, single parent home, I guess you could say we were working class. I couldn't have gone to Hampton without grants, the Pell Grants, school loans and all that stuff. And, you know, I saw the Cosby show and I saw Dr. Huxable and and his wife, Mrs. Huxable, who's a lawyer, and he's a doctor. When I got to Hampton, I had never seen so many wealthy black people. I had never seen that before. And it was so, it was eye-opening. Um, I won't say it was intimidating, but it was eye-opening. And I, it was just, I was just like, wow, black people live like this. And if they live like this, then why can't I live like this? It was inspirational. People that I know who have gone to Hampton, went to Hampton, uh, usually they are uh, generational. Their parents went to Hampton or grandparents went to Hampton, uh, kind of like a family situation, uh, it seems to be. Uh, kind of in that lineage and very 
very usually middle to upper class individual kind of living the dream. But, you know, I've not been to that campus before. Uh, I've been to Howard many, many times, but have not been to Hampton. Just heard a lot about it. But it seems to be very uh, insulated, if you will, for those and do seem to be very professional, those well-to-do mm-hmm. who come out of Hampton. Uh, but those that I've met, the very good close contacts and great people to be a part of. It's a great place. And and, and actually, the the trailer that I have saw with the, the Homecoming Ready mm-hmm. and the work that I saw that you've done, uh, I learned a great deal about Hampton. I think that's going to be a great episodes to come. Yeah. Uh, I was excited about the information and some of the history. So I will give a kudos and a plug to what I have uh, witnessed thus far with that. And um, even shared with some of the people that I know who did go to Hampton and shared that information with them about uh, that we're not aware. So I've learned a great deal and have a a new respect for some of the information that I didn't even know. So I'm excited to see what you guys do with that in the coming episodes or film. Um, Well, our next episode, episode four, our guest is going to be Emmeline Stewart of Stewart Cinema and Cafe. She is the founder and, and owner of um, October Film Festival and, um, and of, um, like I said, Stewart Cinema and Cafe, which is a um, theater and a cafe that's in um, Brooklyn, New York. She's the, uh, I think she's the first or only woman, or at least I won't say only woman. She's the first black Latina to own a theater in America right now, I think. But we're going to get into that in our next episode. And that, to me, sounds like <laughs> some sauce. If you don't know what sauce is, that sounds like sauce. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of sauce. It's going to be one. a lot of sauce. So we're looking forward to getting into that. I'm excited Great about that, that feature guest. It's just, you know, we're starting, just starting, but it's getting good. It's going to get better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what's the sauce? Um, you know, some people like the marinades and some people focus on spices. I don't know about you, but I, I, I like a variety of sauces. And I think our guests are very interesting and come with a lot of different flavors. And that's what we like. And um, and we're going to keep bringing them. We're going to we're going to keep giving the, our audience, our growing audience, uh, different flavors. Yes. And um, and different people from all walks of life. You know, we're not just talking about education. We're not just talking about hot topics, hot topics or uh, civil unrest. You know, we're going to talk a lot about entertainment, entrepreneurship, comedy, wellness, holistic medicine, fashion, sports. Now, we're going to get into sports soon. We're going to get into the culinary arts. We are. Yes. And also fashion design. Uh, we're going to have uh, um, Paulette Cleghorn, who is the um, owner of Designer Loft NYC. We're going to have we're going to have a lot of different guests. I'm excited. I think we're going to have some public affairs and government lobbying type issues. Mm-hmm. We've got a few few people lined up coming. It's going to be a, a pretty flavorful and saucy type of summer as it relates to our our lineup and uh like i said we're just getting started but uh what's the sauce what's the sauce 
I'm Tony Clomax, writer-director extraordinaire, and my co-host is... I'm Dr. Tammy Holmes, Tammy L. Holmes. I'm just me. I don't have a whole title. Uh, <laughs> I have a consulting company called We Learn LLC here, and uh, I'm just happy to be here with the extraordinaire once again. All right. We see you guys next time. Stay healthy. <laughs>